Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. Hey everyone, I'm Laura Lavoir, and this is Song Cycle the official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything art song, its history, its creation, its performance, and its ability to tell stories that connect communities. In this episode, I have Linda McAllister with me. Linda might be known as the executive director of Schmidt Vocal Arts, but to CSI, She is a board member extraordinaire and an inspirational leader in the arts world. She and I talk about the challenges with changing careers, arts leadership, presidential waivers, and our deep love of Amanda Gorman. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Song Cycle. Today we are very blessed to have an amazing guest with us, Linda McAllister, who is the executive director of Schmidt Vocal Arts and an all-star member of the CSI board. We are so happy to have you here, Linda. Hello. Thank you for having me here, Laura. It's a pleasure. I'm so thrilled to actually have an opportunity to get to talk to you a little bit more because when you were brought on to CSI, Sam was like, we have this amazing new board member. And I was like, this is great. And then I remember my first experience of you as a person was sending me your videos for the introductory video that we did for this season. (laughs) And I was obsessed. I was like, Linda (laughs) is a rock star. Like I was so feeling it in my little heart right now because I was putting together that video and I was like, Linda's got it. She looks amazing. She sounds great. She said the thing and it like fit perfectly with the music I chose. It was awesome. But you don't realize I did like 25 takes of that before I actually sent you something. (laughs) But Linda, I was just, I was very grateful for your contribution to that very seminal work of my editing output. Hey, I think we've all become semi-professional video editors in the last year, so I'm I'm, there with you. (laughs) All right, so Linda, you're here. We are so grateful to have you. Can you please tell the good listeners of Song Cycle who you are, what you do, and your connection to CSI? I grew up on a farm in Minnesota. Yes, you Um, did. Totally on a, a sugar beet first pig farm and then corn and soybeans, so I... 
I grew up in the in the kind of the middle of nowhere, but I had a mom who was a city girl from St. Paul, Minnesota. She uh, wanted her daughters to be able to be musicians. So I started as a violinist and pianist very early on, three and five years old when I started those. And yeah, so I, I was exposed to music very early on and kind of went from there to school and I ended up in Ohio at Miami University for my master's. So I was in Cincinnati for a number of years at Miami and CCM. And then I made my way to Germany after a couple of years, <laughs> as one does. Yes. And just loved living there for about four years. And then I came back to Cincinnati and I've been here for almost 10 years now. No longer 11 years <laughs> and 2020 um, is a lost year it doesn't know right 11 <laughs> years and it's just been great being back in a city where I, I had connections from school and um, I've had some really great job opportunities as you mentioned now I'm the executive director of Schmidt Vocal Arts and we're based now in Covington Kentucky just across the river from Cincinnati and it's a really great place to be you know, happy, happy place to live and happy in my career. And, and I'm happy to be a part of the CSI board of directors when Sam approached me probably about a year ago. It was, it was your last live concert um, yep. with Laura Strickling. Oh, and <laughs> that was such a good concert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Laura and I go way back. So I had brunch with her and then coffee with Sam and he, he asked me to be a part of the board. And it's really funny because uh, my colleague Audrey Luna at Miami and I, we, we, were, we were throwing around ideas about our own art song organization years ago. And we went to as far as registering a name at, at the Ohio Attorney General's office. And that's about all we did. And Sam said that when he went to register a name for CSI, that he looked up the name that we had taken first. Oh my gosh. And saw, and saw that we had this idea. Um, so he's like, wow, I got a great contact with Linda. So we had a great coffee and it's been a, just such a pleasure to be a part of this organization. It, CSI does such great things. And I think it's a good example of what can be done in hard times um, and, you know, what can be done moving into the future for art song. Absolutely. And I think that it really is, it's the people that you have with you more than anything I've learned during this pandemic, like working with CSI and, you know, seeing what other arts organizations are doing, having good people on your board, on your staff, artists who are working with you, it's a total game changer. Because if you if you don't have people who support you or support the vision that you're going for, especially like not just during the good times, but especially during the hard times, what are you gonna do? Exactly. Yeah, you need a, a really great support system. And I think you and Sam have have put together a, a great group of people not to pat myself on the back or anything. Oh, pat yourself on the back. You are absolutely <laughs> one of those great people. And we are just, we're really fortunate to have a great board with really fantastic people on it, yourself included, who really support what we do. And um, I mean, it's not just, you know, for Sam and me, because we love our song, it's for everybody to connect sure. to everybody and everybody who is with us on that believes in that, which is so neat. Mm -hmm. So speaking of art song, one of the first questions that I ask all of our guests is to you, 
what is an art song? You know, I, I find this to be kind of a hard question, but kind of not really. So I was, I was thinking of it, you had asked previously art song and how does it differ from opera? Mm-hmm. And that's what I was thinking about more because I like to think of art song as kind of an intimate short story mm-hmm. as opposed to like the novel length of an opera. And in an art song as the singer and the pianist, we get to show character development in you know just a few minutes, or if you're doing a cycle, maybe 30 minutes. And I always found that as a singer to be much more satisfying in a way. You get to show a lot of things in a very short amount of time. Um, I also love the intimate relationship between the singer and the pianist in art song. It really is a duet. It's an equal partnership, um, equal relationship. And, you know, when, when I'm working with some pianists, it's just so easy to make music. It's like a living organism when you yeah. find the pianist that you love working with and who it's kind of like slipping on your favorite pair of shoes or oh, something. Sure. There's something mm-hmm. like so comforting and familiar. And it's just like, it's like, it's like my Birkenstocks. I've had them for 10 years and they have molded to my foot. They are perfect. They understand me. They support me, you Mm. know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I've worked with some really great pianists over the years and you can really tell who you connect with on a musical level. Unfortunately, my, my, my guy is in Germany. So it's really interesting because I've, the majority of my conversations have been with coaches or with pianists. And Mm -hmm. it's so funny because we both have a similar experience when we sort of meet our match. Doesn't really matter what side of the piano or what side of the instrument you're on. But when you meet your match, it's a very special connection, although it manifests itself in slightly different ways. It's always really interesting to me to talk to other singers about art song, especially because when you when you have that deep and intimate connection with your pianist, with the text, with the the character in the story that you're telling, to me, there is nothing more magical than having that opportunity to tell sort of a, a condensed story, as it were. Yeah, for sure. And there's nothing I don't think there's anything as exposed when you when you are on a recital stage and it's just you and the pianist up there and you know if you're singing like Schubert Dubisti Roux or something like that I mean that's being being vulnerable for sure oh my gosh I <laughs> I was talking to I don't remember who I was talking to I was talking to a friend of mine recently about how I've been I've been really into Brene Brown's work recently and her work in shame and vulnerability and I love her work but if I read too much of it I just get very sensitive (laughs) I'm just like I'm just like wow I'm feeling so vulnerable all the time but I feel like that's the space that I constantly live in when I'm singing music that I am just in 100%. And it's so hard, even if it's like a happy song or something that's romantic, it doesn't even have to be sad or, you know, Wilhelm Meister or, you know, Ophelia or anything tragic. It just, I just cry. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Oh, for sure. I mean, I remember the last couple, I haven't performed really that recently, but the last few things that I did were 
really crazy emotional. And I just had to cry at my piano, just number one, so I wouldn't do it on stage. But it really is, I don't know, I think if, if you allow yourself that space, that's what the audience connects with because they see what the singer is offering. Yeah. And that's something that coming into this podcast, I hadn't really developed a full concept of what art song was to me. I mean, I knew sort of in the literal sense. Um, but one of the things that I think is so important, and I, I did almost an entire episode on this specific thing, is this intimacy that happens in art song, where when you're in an opera, you're putting on you're performing for people or you're performing at people. But when you do an art song or when you do an art song recital or chamber music where you are typically in a smaller room with a much smaller ensemble, you have this intimacy that people are like, I don't know what language you're singing in, but I feel exactly what you're singing about. One of the most, the best compliments people can give me after a concert is like, I know you were singing in whatever language, but I knew exactly what you were talking about. I was there with you in the story. I understood you. I felt you like, and that brings people in instead of performing outward. Yeah. Which I think is you really don't want to push them away by any means. You want to yeah. bring them in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something that's really special. And one of my favorite things to geek out with fellow singers about just because I think <laughs> it's, it's something that's really unique because I think about being nerdy, I think about the lineage of storytellers, you know, from the great storytellers of the Greek epics, you know, and then it comes down to us and, you know, actors and other people who sort of share stories like this. And I'm like, wow, we have a very important role in history to play as storytellers. So I think it's kind of neat. We do. And we need to continue that with not only the old masters, but the, the new up and coming storytellers as well. Well, yeah, and this transitions beautifully into what I wanted to talk to you about in terms of your career. So you've kind of had both sides of the same coin. You've had, like I said, this awesome performance career that it, we'll call it an international vocal career because <laughs> you've been in Europe. I might be stretching it. <laughs> Listen, I sang on the Ponte Vecchio. I consider myself having there an international go. career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you've had this really awesome opportunity to have a performance career, but also get into arts administration. So can you talk to talk to me a little bit about <laughs> what experience was like for you understanding kind of the importance and the role of the performer, but also the importance of people supporting it? Can you talk to me a little bit about why you decided to do that and what that experience was like for you? What's funny is that working in arts administration was actually my plan A. When I, wow. when I went to my undergrad, as I said, I, I started music very early. And in a small town, there weren't a whole lot of opportunities. So I did, in Minnesota, we had post-secondary enrollment options. So I actually went to undergrad my junior year of high school. And when I went there, I was bound and determined not to be a music major. I was like, I am not going to be a musician. It's not going to happen. But I, so I was an international business major. And then I, um, I, had, I got a music scholarship. So I had to at least be a music minor, I believe, if I remember correctly. But then at some point I thought, well, I want an hour of voice lessons because only the minors only got a half hour. So then I, I just declared a vocal performance major at the same time. So I ended up 
with a double major, but I was 20 years old when I graduated. And I was, and I thought to myself, I don't want to get a job. I'm 20 years old. So I, I ended up deciding to go to grad school for vocal performance. And I ended up at Miami University of Ohio. And um, that's kind of where I caught the performing bug. I, I went to Brevard the summer in between that when I was 20, 21. And um, that's when I first started studying with Audrey Luna, who had a career in Europe and came back and has been at Miami for a long time, a great mentor of mine, friend, family. And that's when I decided, well, maybe I'll try this singing thing. And I, I lived in Cincinnati for a while doing the normal chasing of auditions you know, like many, many singers my age, I worked as a waitress at Vito's Cafe and I started my DMA at CCM. And then after that year of my DMA, <laughs> I was like, mm, I don't know if this singing thing is for me. So I actually moved back to Minnesota and I was just working a temp job and trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life. But while I did that, I, it was like the fall and I, and I thought to myself, well, I've never done the Met auditions. Maybe I should do them once before I totally get out of shape. And I won in Minnesota that year. And then I, I started freaking out. I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't stop singing. And the only, the only young artist auditions where the deadlines hadn't passed were Music Academy and the Staines Music Institute. And um, I did, I did auditioned for the Staines Music Institute in Chicago. And I remember that audition clear as day. It's a beautiful hall to sing in. I walk in, Margot Garrett is the only person listening to me. And I decided I was, I was totally strategic about this audition because I knew Margot lived in Minnesota and she had taught there for many years. And I went in and I had proposed working on a Libby Larson set. So I'm like, check, Minnesota. And then I sang a Dominic Argento song. <laughs> check. And, and I just thought to myself, I'm going to make Margot remember me. And I, I remember clearly I sang um, Dirge by Argento. And after it was finished, Margot said, you know, Dominic would really have loved that. And I was like, oh, thank you. And she accepted me into that program. And she like really changed my life. She's one of those people that I've known, that was in 2005. She accepted me into the program. And, you know, I was kind of that wild card singer. Like I didn't have any connection to her. I wasn't at a big school anymore. The people I was with at Stains that summer, I mean, they're singing all over still. And it was an amazing program. And uh, I did that in the August following that. But in between, I almost joined the Air Force Singing Sergeants. I got accepted into the Air Force Singing Sergeants. I know I'm telling my entire life story now. Oh, that's um, amazing. So I was, I was given the job in the Singing Sergeants. Those jobs are so lucrative. They're so yeah, I mean, lucrative. You're, it's a steady job for sure. And I would have been based in DC singing at all the inaugurations and all of that stuff. And I, I remember when I told Margot that she just kind of looked at me like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, oh, it's a steady job. But then they rejected me at the last minute because I'm pretty much blind. Like my eyesight is horrible. They were like, you can't be in the Air Force. 
So then I came oh, up with God, a different plan. Okay. <laughs> I know I came up with a different plan. And Margot was a part of the big part of that plan. She suggested I think about Germany. And I applied for a grant out of Boston. And I was in the second or third round of that grant when I got a call from the Air Force that said, Linda, you have a presidential waiver for your eyesight. We want you to join the Air Force. So I, I kind of stalled a little bit, but then I wouldn't say yes. So they just took it as a no. But then I got the grant to study in Germany and I moved to Germany. And even when I got there, I had a plan to study with a teacher and it kind of fell through. And I ended up living in Augsburg near Munich and met some amazing people, still some of the best friends of my life. I, I love that city. I love the people there. And I had some, you know, a really great two years at the Hochschule there um, studying. And then I, I did some freelance stuff. I wouldn't say my singing career there was like super busy. I was singing concerts here and there and, and teaching English. And I was there right at the economic downturn when like no one was leaving their fest contracts. And it was even really hard to get auditions, even though I had agents working for me. So at some point I decided, well, maybe it's time to transition back to plan A. So I, I started looking for jobs probably nine months before I ended up moving back um, because I really wanted to have something in place when I moved back to the States. I thought to myself, I can live a really good life in Augsburg. I didn't have a car. I, you know, I had friends, a good job. And so I really wanted something to come come back for and totally random internet check when I was in the States visiting my family, I checked the website of the Ravinia Festival for Staines Music Institute, and they were posting jobs for the summer. So I called up Diane Dorn, who was like the longtime director of the Staines Music Institute. And I said, Diane, I don't know if you remember me, but I was there, you know, four years ago or five years ago. And she said, of course, you know, how's Germany? And we chatted a little bit and I said, you know, not to be too forward, but I am driving through Chicago tomorrow. I'd love to chat about the summer job. <laughs> and... And so, and I literally, I was driving through Chicago. We were driving from Florida back to Minnesota or something. And I sat down with her and a couple days later, she offered me the job. And then I moved back to the States five, five weeks later. And so I came back with just that summer position, but then through her, I made contact with uh, Rosemary Ritter, who works at Songfest and then I became that the first ever executive director of Songfest for two years. And then after that, I moved on to working with um, the Schmidt Foundation, which at that time was connected to Miami University. So I worked with that Miami. And then in the summer times, I would go to, I went back to Staines for two summers. And then I ended up going and working for the Internationale Meistersinger Academy in Neumarkt, which is run by Edith Wiens, um, who's at Juilliard. So I was their artistic administrator for about seven years. And um, my last summer there was 2019. And that's when I resigned from that after I was named executive director of Schmidt Vocal Arts, because that's obviously a year round busy position. 
Yes. So that is a very long story to your question, but I'm back to plan A. It's such a great story because I feel as though a lot of a lot of singers are their plan A is very much the performance track. You know, and they're like, "Oh, well, I guess I'll go into arts administration or something if I absolutely have to." But I think it's really great that you had the opportunity to sort of float around the performance world for a bit, but you said, my heart is actually really in this other place. And I feel like when you have sort of a calling or vocation towards something, it kind of chases you down and you're like, I can't avoid this any longer. And somehow the stars magically align and you end up where you need to be. And obviously you ended up where you need to be. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, you know, whenever I talk about my time auditioning in Germany, it's a weird thing to talk about because like, I know I'm a good singer and I've actually became a better singer once I started teaching, I think, but my singing career, I never had the right timing. I met some really great people, but as far as performing and auditions, I just did not have any luck whatsoever in timing. And I think singers need a little bit of that, especially sopranos. Yes. <laughs> and I just, I, as a singer, never had it. As soon as I decided I'm going to transition back into arts admin, things have just fallen into place for me, which I find myself incredibly lucky where I am, where I, I have my dream job. And, you know, I have a lot more, many more years that I get to hopefully keep that dream job. No, and that's great because I think I'm definitely dealing with a certain level of that in terms of my own career, you know, like, I'm doing my doctorate. My dream job is to be a professor, but I still have that like, well, I'm still young enough to audition for some stuff, but it just, you know, being a soprano, it's a tough life. It is. It very much is. But when, when things are right, I truly believe that somehow the universe conspires to make it happen for you. And obviously that happened for you. And I'm, I'm curious just to kind of get into the nitty gritty of it a little bit. Obviously, you know, even when you are on the right track to where you are supposed to be, there are obviously going to be challenges and successes along the way. And I'm curious to know what some of those challenges and rewards for you were along that path. Yeah, I, I totally understand. I think as a singer, when I was really pursuing that, my biggest challenges were that I did have pretty bad nerves, performance anxiety. I did learn to overcome them to a certain extent, but I always felt more comfortable in, and I loved rehearsing a lot more than I loved performing. And I always thought that that was in the back of my mind, maybe a clue about which direction I would end up in. And I also really love watching my friends perform. So that was a big clue about where I should be. When also when I was auditioning, I, I like, it was very, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't fit into a box very well as far as my voice type. And I went, I always, I was like going in between lyric coloratura, lyric soprano. I could sing low. I used to be a mezzo. And I think in Germany, a lot of, they do like boxes there and, and they didn't know which Fach to put me in. Um, and that probably didn't help my auditioning either, but you know, in the end, it's like, would I have loved to sing more? Yeah, but I'm not unhappy about where I am now. And I think the challenges with being now 
basically solely an arts administrator. Sometimes I do miss singing. I do miss being on stage. And I think it is a challenge for someone who does have that background to really still still keep like that creative music making side alive and you know the sparks flying about oh what what's my next concert going to be but you know I, I i'm also at a point where if i really wanted to put on a concert i probably could find a place to do it and there's a way there's a way for me to do that what are my other challenges right now in my position i actually have the opportunity to do a lot of things and sometimes I have to just remind myself not to do too much too soon or too much at the same time. Because even though um, we do a lot of programming, the only um, full-time staff members are Bree, our program assistant. Shout out to Bree if she's listening. Um, and me. So there's just the two of us. And then we have obviously a network of singers and teachers and um, faculty across the country, but those are those people pop in and out. And we have a really great board of directors who are really involved. So that's also nice. But I, sometimes I just have to, you know, hold myself back a little bit. That's something I've talked to. My husband is also a singer, but something he and I have talked about a lot as people we both have sort of normal people muggle jobs as sam likes to call it and it's so funny when you experience sort of normal non-musical life as a musician or as a creative person and you realize that people don't always think that way and then when you get around people who are artists and think in really wild ways and they kind of have ADD with tasks that they're doing and you're constantly bopping from thing to thing and you're always thinking about solutions to problems and creative you know things to do with situations that arise and you're like wow I'm with other people who understand me it's very refreshing but also when you're in those situations where you have to be sort of straight laced and follow your workflow and whatever, it feels a little um, constricting, but you have to find those moments to be, to be creative, like you said, which is hard. It is very hard. And I don't think um, creative people realize how hard a normal like eight to five job is. When I went back to Minnesota and I was working a temp job, I would get home at 5.30 and just keel over. I always thought, oh, I'll come home, I'll cook dinner, I'll practice for an hour. <laughs> my voice. Linda, that you are literally no. reading my brain right now. <laughs> that happened maybe like the week before the Met competition. No, a few weeks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's normal every day, like sitting in a desk or commuting. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's, it like zaps the creativity out of people. Is there a way that you have found, because I mean, you are in arts administration, but you are in administration. You have sort of a relatively, you know, normal job in the sense that you're probably doing emails and mm -hmm. logistics and budgeting and things like that, you know, putting together yep. meetings. Do you find that you have found a good way to balance the needs of your creative life with your muggle life? <laughs> um, or if not, why? I'm I am purely asking this for my asking for a friend. I'm asking for a friend. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'm lucky that um, aspects of my current position do have a creative aspect to them. For instance, right now we're planning our summer program 
And I work with the teachers of high school students to, to assign repertoire for young singers. So that, that's, that's kind of a creative outlet. And, you know, during the normal, normal year, I'm traveling around to different cities and listening to singers. So I, I have a lot of just live music and performances in my life. I think what's been hard about this year is that even though I think there is tremendous value to everything and all everything that has moved from live to online, I mean, we're doing it as well. It's just hard at the end of the day, if you have a normal, normal quote unquote, normal job where you're sitting at a computer, it's hard to quit for dinner and then say, oh, I'm going to log back on at 7 p.m. It's hard. And it, and, it, and it gets harder the longer it goes on, I think. But I do think it's, it's something that will probably stay around in hybrid form, I would imagine. I know our organization is keeping that. I think especially in the arts, this is something Sam and I have talked about so much is, you know, our, our art form is so dependent on live interaction audience that like we were talking about earlier, the ability of the audience to be brought into a performance and for people to connect in that way. But unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not quite sure. We, I think, are stuck in sort of this new place where we are allowed to bloom and grow. We have been forced out of our pot and replanted, for better or for worse. And I think that was one of the reasons I launched this podcast. As I said, people are sick of looking at screens all the time. Zoom fatigue is so real, y'all. And so having yes. the opportunity to like listen to something where you're not having to look at a screen, you can go outside for a walk and listen to me and Linda talk, you know, <laughs> you don't have to be glued to your screen all the time. But I think, I guess it's one way to look at creativity that we're for expanding sure. our, our boundaries of what our art form looks like. I, you mentioned traveling a lot, which is something I am very much looking forward to getting back to once I'm fully yes. vaccinated. I'm half vaxxed right now. I will be fully vaxxed in two weeks, which is very exciting. But you talked about traveling a lot and for your job and getting to listen to young singers and helping teachers plan repertoire for these young singers. And one of the things that I'm sure you deal with, and I know Sam and I deal with a lot as leaders of an arts organization, especially art song in classical music, it's, we are always looking to garner new audiences. And that's typically younger people, whether it's, you know, the millennials who are not quite so young anymore, or, you know, the next generation, Gen Z, or the, the even littler kids. What has your experience been having the opportunity to be an educator and a mentor and an arts leader during this very, um, I'm gonna say the word, unprecedented time, during this really wild time, but also just, you know, in your job as it was in the before times, how has that experience been for you trying to connect with, I don't know, with young people and with people who are, are interested in this and sort of holding that interest with them, or if they don't have an interest in it, starting to develop that or giving them some exposure to what we do. How has that experience been for you? Well, I would say that that part of my job, being able to connect with those singers is probably the most fulfilling part of my job. I love that Schmidt Vocal Arts focuses on young singers mostly mostly high school age singers. And then now we're kind of delving into undergrads as well. I think in that age group, not only is the pool of singers still a little bit wider, so 
some kids don't know what they want to do. Some may have like interest in other genres. But the biggest thing is that they all still have just as like a sense of wonder about them. They're not jaded yet. So just super excited to be there <laughs> and super excited to learn. And like I said, I were planning this summer institute where we're fingers crossed we'll be in person with really, 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 really strict COVID protocols. We're going to be a bubble. And kids who have come out of that program, this will be our sixth in-person one. They come out with lifelong friends, they come out with connections, and I'm still in touch with the ones that did it the first year in 2016. A lot of them are seniors now or first year grad students. And they this year we launched an alumni concert series on our YouTube live channel. And so I've gotten to reconnect with a lot of them. And a lot of them say, well, that summer was the summer I decided I wanted to be a singer. Or that summer was, you know, I thought I wanted to be a musical theater singer, but then so-and-so said, oh, you, you know, you might fit into the classical world better. And now they're, you know, going to grad school for vocal performance. And I, you know, it's, it's like any, any educator. I mean, if you're an educator, you're there to make a difference in someone's life. And, you know, I, I'm just happy that I can like, be a small part of some singer's development where maybe, you know, 20 years down the road, they're doing a podcast with CSI and, and they, you know, mention me, like I mentioned Margot Garrett all the time, um, because, you know, there are people along the way that just make a huge impact on, and maybe they don't know it. That's really the aim of our organization and the William E. Schmidt Foundation Board, too. We want to help change people's lives. That's so special. And I don't know about you, but that was definitely one of the reasons why I wanted to become a teacher in the first place. I feel like with being a teacher, you have the ability to, to affect real change in people's lives, like you were saying. And I think it's it's so special that someday, hopefully the CSI podcast lasts for another 20 years. That would be awesome. Uh, for <laughs> you know, sure. Who knows? We, we may have someone who comes in and says, you know, Linda McAllister was the real MVP. Well, I hope so. All of you Schmidt alumni out there, <laughs> take note. No. <laughs> yeah, I'll be no, it's, it's a really, in 20 years. <laughs> right. No, it's a really, it's a really great place to be in. And it's funny because you know, my original plan, A, I always thought I was going to be an agent for singers. That was kind of my arts admin angle. And in a way, like, I kind of feel like I'm not, I'm not an agent for these high school singers, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm someone who can like guide them to opportunities for sure. And with our summer program, like bringing them all together with like-minded kids. I mean, that's for high school kids. Sometimes you need someone like you to figure out, oh my gosh, I could actually do something in the arts or be a singer or be on Broadway or sing on the, at the Met. And there, I always tell them at orientation, you know, the people in this room, you probably will know in 20 years or cross paths, especially if you're still singing. Uh, I mentioned I caught my performing bug at Brevard Music Center, and I'm still friends with people who I went to Brevard with. So, you know, having having that close contact and uh, the connection, even though it's a small period of time, it's super important. It's so funny now that you're talking about this, I've never really thought about the influence that my high school years had on my musical trajectory at all. But I really do think that it was because I met, I went to Interlochen between my junior and senior year of high school. And 
I only went there because my mom mentioned it to me and I was like, going to arts camp in Michigan for four weeks? Like, I'm never going to get in. I'm not a great singer and I'm just going to be with all these other kids who are way better than me. Like, I'm just, I'm not even going to bother. And she's like, you should just try it. And I went and I truly think that that was that moment for me where I was like, I'm with other people who think the way I do, who love music the way I do, who are interested in the same kind of music as me. And I didn't feel weird anymore. <laughs> Which and I felt like I for high schoolers. Well, yeah, and I, thing. I didn't realize how much of a big impact that had on me because then I got back and I said I was in show choir, like I was, you know, doing the whole, the whole musical theater thing, and I was doing it for fun. But after that, I was like, this is something I could do. There are people who do this not just for fun, but like for real. They make money. They travel. They perform. They have agents. They, you know. They are people who do this for a living. And I thought, this is cool. And I never, I guess I never really thought about how, how impactful that was for me, especially, and I'm still friends with the people I met at Interlock. And that was, oh gosh, that was almost the 15 years ago. But, but 15 years is still a good chunk. I mean, that's to still keep in touch. And yeah, it's, it starts early now, those, that networking thing. But it's cool. It's really neat. And so I feel like that that must be a really special thing for you to be able to um, sort of facilitate that for for them and just know that that is a very important thing to help kids establish those connections. And that leads me kind of into one of the things that I wanted to talk about. And I, I feel like every time I talk to or I ask people this question, they're like, oh, I'm not an arts leader, but you're an arts leader, obviously, uh, because you lead an arts organization. And you've you've been doing it for for a long time and i'm sure you've seen a lot of changes in the industry and a lot of changes in your own both your career and your outlook on what it means to be an arts administrator and so what are some of the things that you have learned along the way that you think are valuable traits or attributes to being a leader in the arts so i actually came up with five different categories <gasps> for this question i'm we're gonna need to figure out a really great acronym for them Okay. After, after I sing. Okay. So the first one, focus slash innovation, impact, flexibility, and inclusion. So it's like Fifi, maybe. Fifi. Fifi. So the first one, like focus, I think it's really important for arts organizations to have a really clear focus, specific focus. For me, for Schmidt Vocal Arts, it's creating programming and offering funds for for young singers to help follow their dreams. A simple focus, but it's a pretty great focus. Then within that focus, you need to be able to innovate within your field. So like the quintessential looking outside the box type of thing to make sure you keep people interested. And that has to do with like, you know, not always doing the status quo, um, just coming up with new ideas so that people don't lose interest. And I mean, the great thing about our, with the high school programs is that you know, we have three years and then they cycle out of our programs into the undergrads. So at least they're getting a new thing when they get into their undergrad years. Um, but then going into impact. So um, I think arts organizations sometimes need to make decisions on like how many people they're going to impact as opposed to the level of impact um, for their organizations. So for me, I try and really maintain a balance of programming that involves a lot of singers and then other programs like our scholarship programs that really provide funding 
for a smaller group of singers that will really substantially impact those people's college careers. And then if you go to flexibility, obvious answer for 2020, 21, like so many organizations, like including CSI, Schmidt Vocal Arts, we had to completely revamp our season when, when everything shut down. I was actually supposed to go see a Schmidt alum sing Maria on, in West Side Story on Broadway the day it closed down. And we had like a competition weekend with three events happening that weekend. And it just, you know, cancel, cancel, cancel. And then we had a big chunk of our season remaining. And we just, we kind of, you know, canceled everything and said, you know, we'll come up with a plan in two weeks. And we did, and it worked out. And we revamped the summer and then, you know, the fall and the spring. And, um, you know, it has worked. And I think, you know, there are a lot of arts organizations that are obviously struggling during this time. But at the same time, I think we have found a lot of silver linings during the year. Uh, for me personally, um, without having to travel, you know, 14 weekends out of the year or um, to the German festival anymore. I've actually had time to you know, reconnect with my friends, like go on a walk. Um, and wow. actually, I know. And, and like think, have time to think up new ideas, which we've done. And I don't know if we would have come up with all of those new ideas if it had been the status quo. A good example is that I've reached out and talked to more alumni in this past six, nine months than I had for the previous four years, probably. Just because we, we made that one of our goals to, to reconnect with people. And it worked. And now, and now they're more involved. And then I think the, la the, last, the last of the FIFI acronym is a very important one. It's inclusion. And I think nowadays, especially in all entertainment industries and even across the world, inclusion and diversity is really at the forefront of everyone's minds. And as leaders and as arts leaders, I think we need to be ahead of the game in our hiring practices and our program offerings and while I don't by any means consider myself to be like a visionary in this area, I am definitely doing my best to make sure that diversity is represented in both our student populations and our faculty network. And I think one thing that we've all learned, especially in this last year, is that representation does matter and it's important. And um, it's something that we need to continue to be looking at in years to come. Something else I had time for this year. I'm in, in um, studying in a graduate certificate program called the Global Leaders Program. And it's this course, nine month course, where we have 60 people from across the globe that are culture, we're all cultural change makers, is what they call us. And um, it's been really great to be able to connect with other musicians. I mean, there's musicians, there's teachers, there's administrators, conductors. And it's been great because I think a lot of artists and arts leaders have tons of really great ideas. And sometimes we need to really learn how to structure them and to um, implement them. So I think with that program, that has also given me another viewpoint as far as what I need to do as an arts leader to make the maximum amount of social impact that I can. I feel like you should develop a course that you should teach at Miami or something that is 
about Fifi because this is <laughs> but this is a real I, thing. I, Everything that you were talking about in terms of getting into arts and arts administration and arts leadership and just being an artistic person in general, like even if you're just managing your own career, it's so mm -hmm. important. The The two things that really stuck out to me that you were talking about were flexibility and inclusion. And I think you've probably experienced this yourself with Schmidt Vocal Arts is there is a real benefit. Like I was saying, I don't even, I think we were talking about this before, or maybe at the very beginning of the podcast, um, when you have good people around you you know, and being in that position where you're supported by good people who are dedicated to the vision of the organization, you you have flexibility automatically. I mean, in the case of CSI, we had the benefit of being very small. It's just Sam and me. So when we had to pivot, we were able to pivot very quickly because we're not working on a $10 million a year budget like the Metropolitan Opera or however many millions of dollars they're working on per season. I haven't checked recently. But I think that's something that is so important to remember is, you know, when you have good people to support you, who support the vision, it's easier to be flexible. But also, if you are a small organization, that helps. It is easier to pivot. And we're, we're an organization of two as well. But I had a lot of help when we when we decided to pivot. And that's, you know, it took it took a small village to, to get it pivoted, but it worked out. And, and all of our adjudicators and, you know, connections and universities across the country, they were all so supportive and so supportive and continue to be of our mission. And the other thing that you mentioned with the, with inclusion, I think is something as artists, I feel like we should have known better, you know, before the past year has happened. And I feel like we did know better, kind of, in our brains. We're like, we're artists, we're sensitive, we like other people, you know, we want everyone to be treated fairly. And then you hear all these stories about people who don't feel like they're included or who are actively being excluded or harassed or generally just not being given opportunities that they rightfully should be given. So I think it's really great that your organization and other organizations are are trying to rectify that in whatever way that we can. And I was honestly a little skeptical after everything that happened last summer. I was like, you know, I'm kind of worried that this is just going to be kind of a flash in the pan sort of situation where there are the, we recognize that these gross atrocities are happening, but it'll just kind of go back to business as usual. And what I'm really really happy to see is that people are actually still trying. You know, arts leadership is still saying, no, this is still a problem. We're still working on it and we will continue to work on it until it's fixed for us. And then we will continue to perpetuate the message so that other people who interact with our organization will see that that's, it's not just important to us, it's important to arts as a whole. Exactly. We are, we are the people who need to keep the wheel turning, keep things moving forward, be more empathetic. And while there's no way I can understand what a lot of people have gone through, I am trying my best to be empathetic about it and to do what I can. Well, and that, that brings me to, to another question, I guess, that I have for you, sort of in the broader sense of art song right now and kind of art song performance, recital performance and stuff like that. 
What do you see as our obligations to evolving the performance medium? And what that can be anything from being okay with having live streamed or virtual concerts to what diversity, equity, and inclusion looks like. So what do you think is our obligation to evolving the art form? I think as, as lovers of art song and as leaders, we always need to be thinking about how we can evolve. I totally, totally believe in the saying that if you stay where you are and you're not looking ahead, you'll fall behind. And I think just the, in general, the genre of art song is prime for evolution. It's a small ensemble, often short pieces. It's the perfect genre to try new things because you have kind of low risk. You aren't engaging an entire orchestra. You aren't, or low financial risk, we should put that. You're not engaging an entire orchestra. You're not staging an opera. And I actually, I have a colleague that I'm working with now, very beginning stages of trying to develop, you know, different kinds of song performances, hopefully coming to a conference near you in the next future, in the future year. But, you know, if it's an online concert for, for art song, I do think there's just, you know, there's, you can do so many cool things, things that I can't do because I'm not a video editor, but it's, it's like often it's, I would much rather watch an art song concert online just because it's easier to capture everything, I think. It's easier to do a close-up of the singer as opposed to doing the symphony orchestra or even an opera where, you know, you lose the grand scope of it. I think the intimate nat nature of art song lends itself to a camera, even though I love the live versions too. I think you're right. And it's kind of like we were talking about with smaller arts organizations, it's easier to pivot when you have fewer exactly. people involved and when you have those people sort of on board with the same artistic vision. It's so funny. I've been, you know, kind of building up my roster of people that I would like to have on the podcast as guests. And I had a moment of like, there seems to be fewer composers who actually work directly with people who identify as poets now. You have pianists, you have singers, you have composers, and librettists. But you don't have poets. And one of the things that's really stuck with me, um, I'm not sure if you watched uh, President Biden's inauguration or not, but Amanda Gorman, Amazing. Her, her performance <laughs> was incredible. I was so moved. I was moved to tears. It was amazing. I unfortunately wasn't able to watch her at the Super Bowl, but I watched the inauguration. And that was one of those moments for me where I was like, why, why are we not as composers and musicians like clamoring to work with these people, with these poets, because their words are still music. They were music when Paul Verlaine was writing poetry and they're still music now. Their, their poetry is still music. And that's one of those things that at some point I, I don't, know if I know any poets. If I know any poets, can you please reach out to me? <laughs> um, but I would really like yeah. to talk to them about what their what their view on, on classical art song is right now, because there used to be such a close connection. And now I feel like that has gone away a little bit. But I think that would be really key in helping evolve the art form. I mean, we have some amazing librettists and composers who are around right now working on that. But I think that would just be one more really awesome piece to the puzzle. Well, maybe you just need to reach out to Amanda Gorman and have her be a guest. Fun fact, Sam did. Uh, <laughs> Sam did. <laughs> there, 
And we need like 10 settings of her poem too, to premiere yes. at CSI. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll work on that. Um, I'll let you know how that goes. Excellent. Um, it's just, it's something that if we're not constantly looking at what is around us and what's in front of us, we will just be left behind. And I feel like the arts world, especially during the pandemic, just realized how far behind we were. And now we're like, okay, we have an opportunity to, to step forward into the, into the 21st century now that we're 20 yeah. years into it mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and take the opportunity to, to do some, some really special art making. And I've seen some, which gets me really excited. So Linda, uh, we're, we're just about to wrap up here, but I wanted to ask you a couple of things about how our audience can connect with you. Um, do you have any projects or shows or alumni concerts or anything coming up <laughs> that the good listeners of Song Cycle CSI folks can keep their eyeballs and ears out for? I would invite everyone to take a look at our website, schmidtvocalarts.org. We also have Facebook and Instagram pages that you can follow to stay up to date. We are actually finishing up our high school competition season in the next couple of weeks. And we're in the final round of our brand new undergraduate competition. So that's something that we added this year. So we have, we had 110 singers. It filled up within 20 minutes of us opening the application. We had over a hundred people on the waiting list too. Wow. And we just cut it down to the top 35 singers. And um, next week, uh, those 35 singers will be judged by Afton Battle at Fort Worth Opera, Michael Heaston at the Metropolitan Opera, and Richard Russell from Sarasota. So it'd be really, it's really awesome panel. Can I, is it too late for me to participate? Can I, can I submit? <laughs> no, but you can join us for the live streamed awards ceremony. That's yeah, on May 22nd, awesome. we, have, we have a bunch of live streamed awards ceremonies. Uh, they're all on our Facebook page. And then we also are finishing up our... Um, our online masterclass series, which I'm sure your audience would love to come to our last one on Sunday, May 23rd at 3 p.m. And that's with Jake Heggie. So um, I, love Jake. I love Jake. Love, 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 love. <laughs> um, so four of our Schmidt alumni are singing his songs and he's going to work with them. It should be wonderful. We are, as I mentioned, we're trying to do our in-person Schmidt Vocal Institute this summer. Fingers crossed. Everything will be fine with that. And then everyone especially any high school singers and teachers of high school singers should look at our website in august because we are going to have some big 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 announcements to help celebrate our it's the 25th anniversary season of our competition <gasps> actually 25 that's a good i year. know i have not worked there that long um but um 25 years ago bill schmidt and his sister anna lee hamilton they they started going around Indiana, listening to young singers. So we're going to celebrate that next year with, with some big new plans. Great. Well, we will be sure everyone be sure to check out all of those things <laughs> and also check out the show notes where I will put those things so you Excellent. can find them. And then Linda, before we wrap up, we like to close with a pithy piece of advice from our guests and some have been pithy. And some mm. have been very spiritually profound. I will never, Margot Garrett's. I oh, I just again. listened to that last week. It will stick with me for the rest <laughs> of my life. Mm -hmm. You are enough. Yep. And I think we all need a reminder of that, but no pressure. A piece of advice that you have for the good listeners. 
Well, I thought about copying Margot's, but (laughs) then I thought maybe I should not, should not copy Margot um, because no one's like Margot. Um, So I think for me, I thought about this a lot and it goes back to, you know, something I said at the beginning of the podcast where I took a lot of different paths across my career and they weren't all what I thought was going to happen. So I would say to everyone, young singers, young musicians, anyone who's listening, that you just you don't be afraid to change your path. Just know that there are a lot of directions to take along the way, and they can all end in, end in success some way or the other. And, you know, my career, if you would have asked me 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if this is where I thought I would end up, I probably would have said no but I couldn't be happier and I couldn't be happier, you know, helping other young singers along the way. That's beautiful. And something I needed to hear. I feel like every time, I feel like I say that every time someone gives me a piece of advice or something that's, you know, supposed to be for the listeners. And I'm like, no, that was for me. (laughs) Well, because I feel like so many people, like we've talked about so much during this podcast have had to be flexible during the pandemic. They've had to take jobs that they didn't expect to take. They've had to give up singing. They've had to give up their art. They've had to, you know, give up so many things and transition in so many ways. And I think it's really important to recognize that all of those things are still a part of our path Mm -hmm. and it's okay to make changes. Sometimes changes are good and they lead you to even better places than you thought for yourself. For sure. I love maps and you know, we don't use maps anymore. I have an Atlas in my house and I used to love just planning the way to get somewhere, but there's many ways to get somewhere. Thank you so much for listening. Especially after this episode, I'm going to perpetuate this idea that taking the scenic route through your career is actually okay. Like we talked about, if you're meant to do something, you'll end up where you need to be. Don't worry, you won't miss the signs. You can catch us here every other Monday with new episodes of Song Cycle. And be sure to check us out online at cincinnatisonginitiative.org and on all the socials. Until next time, just keep singing, y'all.